When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we are trying to unpack Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger for the last five years. Oh yeah. With these very, very effortless, easy investing techniques of simply being capable of understanding what you're doing, have a nice moat, get good management and buy it with a margin of safety. And what else is there to talk about? And <laughs> we've managed to fill up five years. <laughs> <laughs> and we're, we're lucky enough today to have somebody who is also interested. We're going to fill it what? Fuller. Yes. We're going to fill it. More fully. We're, we're getting their fullness. Let's of do it. Them. So today we have a guest who is fascinated by Charlie Munger, by Warren Buffett, and by many other incredible investors, some of whom are big names, some of whom are not so big names, which I find really interesting. William Green is here. William Green is a journalist who's written for many leading publications in the U.S. and Europe, including The New Yorker, Time, Fortune, Forbes, Barron's, everywhere. He's the author of the new book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, How the World's Greatest Investors Win in Markets and Life. And it is so good, you guys. Go get it. William Green, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. It's a delight to be here with you both. So I, I got to say, William, we really, uh, it's, you know, it's sort of uh, time for platitudes and all that stuff. And we're having a great author on on board. But there is there are so many books written about <clears throat> this type of investing that we do, This what a lot of people call value investing. Um, but to find a book that is that gets at it so well and 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 really covers so much ground so well is so hard to do. I mean, I've written three of them in an attempt to do this, and it's really hard to do. And I think you've done it <clears throat> maybe you. better yeah, than torture. anybody. It's torture. Oh, my gosh. It's There's so much there to unpack. Um, I don't know. I mean, like I said, I've written three books. That's 1,000 pages or something. I mean, how did you decide to, to, to that you were going to take this on? I mean, what what in the world made you think you could do it better? Yeah, it was a, a great display of hubris. I, th I think I think <laughs> writing a book is a bit like uh, childbirth or, or <laughs> then raising a kid, that I think you have to forget just how difficult and painful it is in order I to agree. do it again. So there's some, there's some strange quirk in our brains that allows us to forget these really difficult experiences. And then before you know it, you're, you're deep into it. And so, yeah, this took me probably about four years, which which probably means it took me longer than four years, but I just can't admit it to myself. <laughs> but but it's really, it's based on, on interviews that I've done over the last 25 years with many of the world's greatest investors. And so I, I looked back and I thought, wow, I have these interviews where I would go spend a day with Sir John Templeton, say, who's probably the greatest global stock picker of the 20th century. And I'd spent a day with him in the Bahamas 20 years ago, or I'd interviewed... Jack Bogle, the founder of, of Vanguard, which now has, what, $6.3 trillion in assets 20 years ago. And then over the years, I, I think I'd spent something like 
80 to 100 hours interviewing Bill Miller, who, who had famously beaten the market for 15 years running. So I had these extraordinary interviews that I'd gathered over many years. And then I thought, well, what would happen if I focused on the most interesting, smartest, wisest investors there? And I really went deep on them. And, and so that got really exciting to me. So I had interviewed people like, say, Howard Marks for a previous book that I'd, uh, that I'd written called The Great Minds of Investing, but I hadn't spent a huge amount of time with him. And Howard had mentioned something like this, this idea of mujo, which is this Japanese word for impermanence, for the fact that everything changes, and that this had been kind of central to his philosophy of investing. And I thought, well, that's a, that's a really profound idea. What if I could explore that sort of thing more deeply? And so this book, in a, in a sense, was, was like the greatest hits of the last 25 years of, of my career. It was me thinking, let me, let me focus on the wisest investors, the most important ideas, the most important lessons, and see if I can synthesize it and distill it in one book. And so there was something madly hubristic about it, right? If this was kind of Moby Dick with his white whale. And, and, then, and then a few years later, as I'm sort of tearing my hair out, I'm, I'm like, I, I, I was too far into it to turn back. And so I just, so I think I missed my deadline by something like two years, which again, probably means that I missed it by even longer, but can't admit it to myself. <laughs> and so, so I, I hope the result is that people look at this, this thing and think, wow, there's actually a lot in here. There's, there, there are some pretty amazing, amazing ideas that don't really come from me. They come from these extraordinary people like Charlie Munger, who I interviewed for the book or Howard Marks or Bill Miller, who I would spend two days with in Baltimore, you know, for just for this book. So, so it's a, it's a bit of an insane project, but I hope, but I, but I hope people enjoy it as a result. It reads exactly the way you talk about it. It reads like there is so much packed into every single page that it could have been five volumes of a book like this. How did you decide who to include, who to talk to, and who not to include? I mean, that must have been a very difficult part of it. One of the most idiosyncratic choices that I made at a certain point was I decided I wasn't just going to focus on people who were incredible money makers. The, 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 the people I write about are incredible money makers, but I also wanted to focus on people who I thought were admirable, ethical, wise, um, and thoughtful. I, I didn't want to just write about people who had an incredible knack for making billions of dollars, but screwed their shareholders, um, uh, were divorced four times and, you know, their kids were a nightmare. I, I wanted to focus on people who I actually thought had a degree of what, what Munger would call worldly wisdom. And so that's a pretty quirky decision to write an investment book about people you actually admire. Because on the whole, I think our image of, of billionaire investors is of them having pretty dysfunctional lives and lots of lawsuits and stuff. But I think part of what's fascinating about people like, like Munger is, is not just the scale of his victory over the last, you know, I mean, what he's now 97, uh, so over the last half century or so as a great investor, but actually the manner in which he's won the, the, this contest. And that's really interesting to me. That there's, a, there's a wonderful um, forward to the biography of, of Munger, damn right, that, that Janet Lowe wrote, uh, the, the forward is written by Buffett, where he said something like, in, in 41 years, I've never seen Charlie try to take advantage of anyone. Mm -hmm. And he said, I've seen him knowingly take the worst side of a deal 
on multiple occasions. And he always takes less of the credit and more of the blame when things go wrong. And, and I thought that that kind of moved me. I was thinking, well, that's the sort of guy I want to learn from. That's someone who, um, as his daughter, Molly Munger, who's a philanthropist and lawyer, said to me, she said he, he money always mattered to him. He, he wanted money because it made him independent. He didn't have to take any grief from anyone. He could live his own way. But she said he was never willing to, um, to sacrifice other things for the sake of money, to sacrifice his ethics, um, or to, to sacrifice what was more important to him in life. And so I wanted to focus on people like that because what I'm grappling with in the book, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say to people, yeah, this is how to get rich. This is how to become financially independent. But I'm also trying to figure out how to live, what, what yeah. actually constitutes a good life, what constitutes a successful and truly abundant life. And I'm not doing that because I want to build my brand or make a fortune or something. It's because I'm actually trying to figure out how to live. I'm, I'm wrestling with these questions of how do you deal with failure? How do you deal with setbacks? How do you deal with stress and adversity? And, and because I had access to these extraordinary people, I could ask them these questions. And so I could, I could, I could say to Charlie Munger, for example, what was it like in 2009 when the market was melting down and everyone was in a panic? Like, how did, and, and he was buying Wells Fargo at what he called the bottom tick of the market in March 2009. And I could say to him, were you, were you afraid? Were you stressed? And he's like, no, I don't have yeah, those emotions. I don't had feel no that emotions. at all. <laughs> yeah. And so that to me is really interesting because I'm trying to figure out how do I deal with my emotions? And, and, and so, I, I just had this extraordinary opportunity to ask some of the greatest minds of our time about these very practical questions. And then I got kind of excited about the idea that I could distill these ideas both for myself, but also to share with people like my kids and who are you know, 19, actually now 20 and 23, and, and with other readers. And so it felt, even though it is kind of torture to write a book, it, it was a sort of joyous torture. There was something very beautiful about it, that you had this sense of, I was like, wow, I'm actually getting to learn some extraordinary things. And, and the privilege of being able to share ideas from people like Munger and Howard Marks, is a, it's, a, it's a wonderful gift, really. One of the quotes that has stuck with me from the book is something Charlie Munger said, which is, in a dispute, you have the opportunity to behave well and not behave badly. Yeah, there and, was a wonder. Yeah, wonder, and, and also when he was talking about adversity, right? Where he exactly. was saying, yeah, to see life as a, as a series of adversities that give you an opportunity to behave yes. well or badly. Yes, and, which and, applies in both uh, investing and in personal relationships, exactly as you're saying. You can, I can put that on my investing checklist, make sure I invest well and not badly in companies that are doing things well and not badly, and in my own interactions with people. Yeah, I, I, my my daughter, who uh, whose name who, whose name I do know, but whose age I got wrong a minute ago, is in hospital at the moment because she got an infection in her oh, hip I'm that so had sorry. to be operated on. And so I was visiting her in the hospital last night, and I I literally quoted that line from Munger um, because I'm saying, look, this is this is an opportunity to behave well. You're faced with this tremendous adversity. You don't, you know, she's got a saline drip in her arm for the next three weeks, and you know, is having to do rehab and figure out how to walk again. And it's brutal for a 20-year-old girl to do. I mean, look, I'm 52. I would be whining incessantly if I were in that situation. Um, but to to say, yeah, this is, 
we we all go through these periods and and this is an opportunity to behave well to be and and i think sometimes people assume that the great investors are somehow protected from from the pain and suffering that other people go through and i i one of the things that's fascinating to me is when you look at people like munga you realize how much they've gone through along the way you know his his first son teddy died when he was about 9 of leukemia um charlie lost most of his money paying for paying for that kid's um uh medical care then got divorced uh eventually lost an eye uh now is very old and and frail and and talks very candidly about facing death and so it's not like you have these these multi-billionaires who are somehow cosseted and cloistered and protected from the 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 pain and suffering that everyone else has gone through that they're actually i i think in some ways their lives are more stressful right because when they when they fail when they mess up it's very public and i i i write a lot about bill miller and about the the difficulties he had during the financial crisis and how he was drawing on stoic philosophy to to deal with the fact that 100 people got laid off because of mistakes that he made and his assets under management went from something like 77 billion dollars to 800 million dollars. And so I I'm I use something like that to talk about how to deal with adversity in my own life because I I for example got laid off from a job during the financial crisis where I'd been editing the European Middle East and an African edition of Time magazine. And I felt like this big shot who would go off and be interviewing presidents and prime ministers and 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 then suddenly you feel this kind of public shame of losing your job mm. and so when i'm going off and i'm interviewing people like bill miller about how to deal with failure and stress and pain it's personal i mean i'm actually trying to figure this out myself how do you how do you deal with adversity and and so i think that's one that's one reason maybe why the book has resonated with people is because there's blood on the page it's like i'm 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 invested. I'm actually trying to figure out how to live and how to deal with these setbacks myself. Do you think that um <clears throat> I mean in general there's a sense uh, strongly in the book that there's there's a quality of living that comes out to to a degree comes out of being a value investor if you do it well. If you follow these these people that you've interviewed the the elements of investing well as a value investor almost mean do you think i mean i just just a question do you, do you think people become better people by being that sort of an investor i don't know if you become a better person i i think that's a choice but i think i think there's something about this kind of long term thinking that's very contrarian that goes against consensus that appeals to a particular type of quirky human being that's willing to depart from the crowd and question the way everyone else is do, doing things. And so I think it it appeals to a certain type of person who can say, well, everyone else is trying to get rich quickly and they're doing these irrational stupid things and they're chasing fads and they're they're speculating on things they don't understand and they're constantly dinged by their phones and tweeting and doing superficial crap and live you know and trying to line their pockets at other people's expense. let me figure out a way to to define my own lifestyle my own way of thinking and so i i think there's something quirky and idiosyncratic about the the great investors the great contrarian value investors who are the people who appeal to me most that they're they're questioning consensus 
And I think one of the one of the things I realized, um, everything is always so self-referential. You think you're writing a book about other people, but in fact, you're writing a book about yourself. And one of the things I realized at a certain point about the type of investors that appealed to me was there were people like Nick Sleep or Monish Pabrai or Guy Spear or, or Charlie Munger, Howard Marks, who, who, who were thinking for themselves and had set up their own lives in a way that was aligned with who they are. And I think for me as a writer, I've, I've lived by the pen as a writer and editor for the last 30 years. I'm kind of an outsider. And I'm, um, and I'm thinking, how, how, do I, how do I set up my own life in a way that's true to who I am, given that I don't, I don't really buy into what everyone else is doing? And so I think, I think that was one of the reasons underlying my fascination with these people. And when, when I see someone like Nick Sleep, who, who I write about at length, uh, who has this extraordinary lifestyle? I think ah, that's a that's an amazing thing. Look how he's structured his life, and he's he he basically he has this this beautiful, light, airy office on the King's Road in the heart of London, uh, above a Chinese herbal store, and and his his ex partner Zach, uh, who I write about as well, doesn't even have a desk. He has this kind of plush leather chair, and. You know, they they put their Bloomberg terminal on a little side table, really low down, so it was physically uncomfortable for them to be actually kind of bombarding themselves with really ephemeral um, information from the Bloomberg terminal. So they've set themselves up in a way where they can just read and think in a in a kind of sunny environment, far from Mayfair, where all of the other hedge funds are, or far from far from Wall Street, and and so. Really, they just were thinkers. They're just studying things like what are the best business models that actually work best. And, well, and, that, I, and that and that that lifestyle setup is not unique to those guys. I mean, you you mentioned that repeatedly. Yeah. About how these investors are setting up their lives their lives absolutely independently of what Wall Street tends to think of as an investing career. Yeah, it's I mean, very can you countercultural. Yeah. Yeah, and it's very countercultural. So if you think about the fact that most of us are being pressured to be more and more short-term in the way that we behave. We're, we're, we're constantly in meetings. We're constantly bombarded with many different um, messages from, from robocalls and uh, everything. It's like this, uh, everything's become very fast and very superficial, very shallow. And so there's something about the great investors who have set themselves up Counterculturally, to move slow, that I find very interesting, and that resonates deeply with me as a writer because I'm trying to do deep work, mm-hmm. and people like Nick and Zach are trying to do deep work, and so mm-hmm. they were asking these really interesting questions at a time when everyone else, or not everyone, but most people on Wall Street, are saying, "What are the quarterly earnings going to be for the next twelve weeks for this company? Will this company beat analyst expectations for this year?" Nick and Zach were would doing what they call destination analysis, where they would say, okay, let's look at a company like Amazon or Costco. And let's say, what's a desirable destination for this company in 10, 15, 20 years? And and what inputs do you need for this company to achieve this kind of eventual greatness that we think they can achieve? And then they would kind of work backwards and they would say, well, so is the company giving more and more value to its investor, to to its um, customers? Are they treating the customers honorably? Are they screwing their suppliers? Are they squeezing them in a way that's unsustainable? Mm-hmm. Are they are they taking care of their shareholders? Is there is there a kind of harmony here? And I think what they figured out is is that 
the the greatest business model as they saw it the single best business model was what they called scale economies shared where you have these companies like Costco that keep building more and more scale efficiencies because they're so well run such low cost amazon as well same thing where they 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 can make an enormous amount of money because they're so well run but then instead of pocketing all of that money themselves they keep pumping it back to give an even better deal to the customer and so it becomes kind of this this um benevolent cycle that has much more longevity much more sustainability and so they were talking about ideas with a long shelf life businesses with a long shelf life so while everyone else is 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 becoming more and more short term and we're all we're all being tempted constantly by this kind of emphasis on instant gratification they were very consciously setting up their physical environment their emotional environment their reading habits their information diet all in a way to be very long term and to be to be looking at the ultimate destination and that's something that appeals to me really deeply as a whether you're a writer and investor yeah. a businessman to say well how 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 would i set my life up in a kind of countercultural way that's more thoughtful where where i think about the ultimate destination what is it i'm trying to become and i literally i i i think about this a lot myself where i think okay so if if the ultimate destination is my funeral how do i want people to be talking about me once i'm dead what what do i want my kids to think about me do, and and my son henry who's 23 is named after my grandfather henry and what i remember about my grandfather who died when i was probably a teenager you know 14 15 is that he used to walk around london just spreading this trail of kindness wherever he went and that's an amazing thing to have this as my my dominant memory of my grandfather he just had this sweetness to him and here i am all these years later naming my own son after him and so in a sense that's a form of destination analysis which i think you can apply to your own life you can apply it to to businesses you can apply it even even to partnerships i think think of think of what we were talking about before with with buffett saying that about never having seen munger take advantage of anyone in, or try to take advantage of anyone in 41 years that's a that's a partnership with a with a long shelf life And uh, and so while everyone else is kind of getting in feuds with their bosses or their partner or their wife or whatever I think thinking about how to construct a life that's more durable that has greater quality is a very profound and provocative thing and so I I see this connection between value investing and life very deeply it's 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 all the same thing and 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 Nick Sleep was very inspired by this this book by Persic this this very quirky philosopher novelist who who wrote Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance mm-hmm. and that whole book is about the pursuit of what Persic calls quality and and so Persic says well whether you're mending a dress or or sharpening a knife or building a chair there's a there's a high quality beautiful way to do it and there's an ugly way to do it and so he said the question is whether you're moving toward quality or you're moving away from quality And so for someone like Nick Sleep he would say well so is my fee structure a high quality one am I am I aligned with my shareholders am I treating them honorably and and so he and Zach kept changing their fee structure so it became less attractive for Nick and Zach and more attractive for their shareholders <laughs> and and so so this idea of quality is a kind of vague and nebulous thing but actually it's a beautiful filter because then you can say well 
is this decision that I'm making, is it a quality one or is it a low quality one? Am I, am I treating this person in a low quality, unethical way, or am I treating them in a way that actually it's, it's moving me towards quality? It's so beautiful also that you don't have to get it right the first time. They changed it over and over and made it better each time iterating and iterating as they learned more. And that's, you know, we don't have to have the same pressure of, okay, I have to do everything correctly, perfectly the first time. And it's okay to make some mistakes and then change it down the line. I also want to add that Nick Sleep's letters are some of the best letters I have ever read. I would put them easily on par with Buffett's about value yeah. investing. Yeah, he's a he's a great writer. And and the point that you made about mistakes is a really important one and this is this is one that actually I've I I have internalized for myself uh partly as someone who's made an enormous number of mistakes myself <laughs> is not not just in investing but in other areas of life. I was talking to Joel Greenblatt about his attitude to mistakes. And and Joel as you know is one of the great value investors. He's he's a guy who legendarily uh average 40% a year over 20 years with his with his first hedge fund, which is an astonishing thing. It means you basically turn a million dollars into 836 million, which is just, just an astonishing feat. And I so love he's, it said like that. <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing thing. And uh, not not something that many of us can clone. But but he said um when I asked him about his attitude towards mistakes, he talked about how he, he would learn the lesson. He was he he really made sure that he learned the lesson of what he got wrong, but then he would let go and would move on. And it's the same thing with Charlie Munger, where Munger talks about making a mistake and then you learn the lesson and then you let go of it. And and he said, I, I, Munger has this very interesting idea that you should rub your nose in your mistakes. Mm-hmm. You should you should admit them publicly, mm-hmm. which I think is really important. You shouldn't be burying your mistakes, which is what most people do. But he didn't fall into this habit of self-laceration and self-flagellation. And I think that's a really important idea. It's it, Given that we're all deeply flawed and that we all make lots of mistakes, particularly in investing, I think having a good attitude to your mistakes is really key. And, and that nuance of saying, yeah, let me learn, let me learn from this mistake, but let me not beat myself up about it. Let me, let me let go of it is really helpful because it, it frees you from it so you can move forward. And I, I have a tendency to self-flagellate. And I would look at, I, I mean, I made a terrible investment mistake uh, um, probably about 15 years ago where I invested in a couple of private companies run by friends of mine. And they were enormously impressive people. And Goldman Sachs invested at a much higher valuation that I had invested in. And so I was thinking, God, I'm so smart. And look at me, I'm in in with the most sophisticated in crowd. And I lost most of the money that I invested. And I invested a significant sum. And and it's really easy for me to look back on that and think, God, if only I hadn't done that, it would be this amount now. And I can't believe I did that. And then just to just to kind of keep rubbing my nose in it. And instead I have to learn the lessons and be like, wow, that's that's really interesting. I'm really subject to this desire to be part of the in crowd and to seem smarter than other people and to be, you know, there's some aspect of my ego that set me up perfectly for that mistake. And so I have to be much more aware of my own flaws. And I, I remember at the time saying to Guy Spears, a very close friend of mine, um, 
I should really take a look at this company. It's just an amazing company. Look at the technology. And Goldman Sachs has invested, you know, 50 times my valuation or something. And Guy just looked at it and he's like, yeah, yeah, not for me. I, I don't do that sort of thing. And Guy just had a few really simple filters, like, no, I'm not going to buy anything that's being sold to me. Um, <laughs> and I don't do, um, you know, private startups in high tech areas where I can't really tell what's going to happen in the future. And I'm, and I'm perfectly happy just to stick with my, with my big stake in Berkshire Hathaway and Nestle and companies like that, that are just going to grind it out over many years. And so just learning, learning from your own mistakes, how you're wired and what, what particular flaws you're vulnerable to is really helpful. And so one of the things that I learned in this process of writing this book is that really what excites me most is, is this idea of what a, a, a great investor called Matthew McLennan calls resilient wealth creation. And once that became clear to me, I'm like, well, I don't need to play around with investing in private companies anymore. I, I don't need to try to impress anyone by saying, oh, look, look what I did. Look how smart it is and what an insider I am. I just need to do resilient wealth creation. Um, and once you what know is that, that, would you talk a little bit more about what that, how he describes yeah, it? I think, I think part of what resilient wealth creation is, is exactly what Berkshire Hathaway does, right? Which is one reason why I own Berkshire stock, because I, I don't know how, how well they're going to perform. I don't know whether they're going to beat the crap out of the market over the next 20 years. I suspect they'll, they'll beat the market. But I do know that they're going to survive, that it's set up to be anti-fragile. That, that, for example, at a time recently when everyone else is, is gambling on things that they don't understand and buying into stocks that have surged or investing in Bitcoin just because it's gone up, not because they actually understand the supply demand um, appeal of it or anything, anything intellectually appealing. Here you have Buffett and Munger sitting on something like $147 billion in cash, quietly twiddling their thumbs, waiting patiently for a great opportunity. And that's an anti-fragile approach, right? They're, they're, they've very specifically said that they'll, they never want to be dependent on the kindness of strangers, and they never want to be dependent on the kindness of friends who are suddenly going through a liquidity crisis. And so they've set things up so that even if the market were to close for several years, they would be fine. If there's inflation, they'll be fine. If there's deflation, they'll be fine. They've set themselves up to survive anything. And, and that to me is a really beautiful idea. And that's something that I, I want to apply in every area of my life. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And, and this is something that Howard Marks said to me. He said, you, you want to set yourself up so that you have an unfragile portfolio and an unfragile life. And so then you have to think, okay, so, so where am I fragile? A am, I, am I overreaching? Am I investing money in the stock market that I can't afford to lose? Am I investing in companies that I don't understand? Am I, am I like a heat-seeking missile charging into the most overheated areas of the stock market? So whether that's electric cars in 2020 or, or, or Brazil and Russia 
in a period where those were those were zooming and everybody thought they were the greatest things. And so it's just asking yourself, am I overreaching? Am I overreaching psychologically? If, if, if there's tranquility uh, and the market suddenly goes down 20, 30, 40%, will I be able to withstand it uh, emotionally? Have I set myself up in a way so that I can still sleep at night? And one of the things that Munger says is, look, over the last over the last 40, 50 years, Berkshire Hathaway stock has halved on three different occasions. And so he said, you need to actually know how to handle with grace and aplomb a 50 percent a, a drawdown. And so if that's going to kill you, if that if you're just going to be utterly miserable if the market tanks by 50 percent, then you're probably in the wrong game. And and you should probably own uh, plenty of bonds and you should have plenty of cash. And and so to me, this is the, the whole idea of resilience and of survival and of avoiding ruin is really fundamentally important. You, you, you look at the greatest investors and they're all focusing on avoiding catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Irving Kahn, who I interviewed, who lived to the age of 109, who, who was one of the one of the people who was closest to Ben Graham, Buffett's teacher, said that the the whole secret of investing was safety. It was thinking first about what you can lose. And and this is something that Phil has talked about so much, right, in in his teachings and his writings. This idea of just starting by asking, well, as as Jeffrey Gunlack, the king of bonds, said to me, it's it's about making your mistakes non-fatal and saying, Mm -hmm. if, if this goes wrong, if I'm wrong, what's the consequence? Mm-hmm. And, and so I think this focus on resilience, on staying in the game, on avoiding catastrophe, on resilient wealth creation is really a pretty wonderful idea. And it, and it really stems from Ben Graham and his margin of safety, right? This idea that because life is uncertain and because we don't know what the future holds, that, it, that the future holds things like COVID, uh, that none of us could have predicted. I mean, we knew that there could be a pandemic one day, but we didn't know that it could shut down everything around the world and that it would change everything so suddenly. We had no idea. And so, so you have to set up your portfolio and your life to withstand these tremendous uncertainties. And, and that to me seems to be essential to the, the teachings of the value investors. It's a, it's a very worldly wise approach to life, right? It's, it's Matthew McLennan, who I write about, who I think is a, a, a really wise and thoughtful person, said to me, you want to position yourself to, to take advantage of the forward progress of mankind, but also to survive the dips. And that phrase, surviving the dips, that, that's something I've really tried to internalize. And again, I said this to, to my daughter in hospital, and I'm like, you're just, you're just trying to survive the dip here. This is just the dip, and you need to know that there's there's sunshine on the other side. But you got to get through this period. So so it's totally interconnected how you invest and how you live and how you build a an anti fragile life and 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 an anti fragile portfolio. It's all it's all the same thing, right? It all, all comes from the same mindset, I think. I, I love that concept of, of anti fragile, and one of the ways that great investors, as he pointed out in the book, uh, encourage ordinary people to handle that question is to simply buy the market, you know, just, just do indexes and, and not try to do the kinds of things that Buffett and Munger and Pabri and, and we all try to do. Um, 
What's your sense of that? I mean, I, I, that's throughout the book, it comes up as uh, as an alternative to trying to invest. Can can an individual investor do this? I mean, is it is this something just for rare, unique people, or is it something we can all do uh, individually invest as opposed to you know, okay, I don't I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to put the yeah. money in an index. It's a, it's a really profound and important question. I wrestled with this a lot in writing the book because the last thing I wanted to do was to lead lambs to the slaughter by claiming right. you can you can play this game and you can win while secretly having this feeling of no you can't and you're going to get killed. Mm-hmm. And 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 what I what I try to explain in the book is that you really have to have the self-awareness to know whether you're equipped to win this game. And I try to lay out um, the rules of the game and to say, if you want to try to beat the market, this is how you do it. This is, this is how these guys have done it. But also to be very clear about the characteristics they have that most of us don't have. And, and, and so I have no doubt that there are people reading the book who are going to make billions of dollars by using this technique because they are wired this way. But I'm very aware of the fact that I'm not wired that way. And, and I admit pretty candidly in the book that one of, one of the lessons from writing about someone like Joe Greenblatt is that I see the distance between him and me, that there are things that he can do that I actually am not equipped to do. And, and so one of the things that he said that had a profound impact on me is he said that when, when you reduce investing to its most simple level, um, which is really the most profound level. He said it all comes down to one thing, which is he said you have to value a business or an asset and then buy it for much less than it's worth. And that's the whole essence of the game. Mm-hmm. But this raises a really profoundly important question, which is, well, do you know how to value a business? Mm-hmm. And so for someone like me, I actually don't really know how to value a business. And I'm not really that interested either. Mm-hmm. And I'm not that patient. And I, you know, I can count to about seven with a calculator if I'm lucky. I'm not mathematically oriented. I'm not that patient. I'm much more interested in kind of the, the philosophy and the psychology of investing than I am. I, I, I'm fascinated by things like the fact that the future is unknowable. And yet, as an investor, you have to make decisions about the future. So how do you do it? That, that seems to me a really profound and interesting and wonderful question. But I'm not really interested in sitting there going through the balance sheets of a company and being like, oh, I can see how they're, they're, they're you know, manipulating the accounting here. That just doesn't interest me. I think it's wonderful if it does. But so I think, I think if there's a takeaway for, for your listeners, it's really to look at your, yourself honestly when you read about these investors like Munger, Howard Marks, Joe Greenblatt and say, am I wired that way? Am I unemotional? Am I able to be dispassionate? Um, do I panic when the market's falling apart? Do I get overexcited when the market's soaring? Uh, do I have the technical skills to value companies? Do I have the extreme patience of someone like Monish Pabrai, who says that the, the single most important quality for a great investor is extreme patience? Can I go against the crowd? Can I think for myself? Am I swayed by the crowd? Uh, am I hardworking? Um, am I intensely competitive? Am I, I mean, it's this, it's this strange cocktail of characteristics that the great investors tend to have 
And I don't even have them. But do you need them all, really? And in other words, the ability to manage billion dollars, ten billion dollars. I mean, the skill set, the intelligence that isn't. Would would it be fair to say it's a bit like athletics, where you know I can play volleyball at a certain level, but I'm not going to be a pro beach volleyball player. And yet I can still really enjoy the game. I, I have all the skill sets I need to do it. I just can't do it as well, as fast, yeah. as big as they can. Would would that be reasonable to say that's that's a decent view? Yeah. And also, one of the things that's really beautiful about this game is that if you have a marginal advantage, a very small advantage, over time it compounds in a way that's absolutely overwhelming. And so I write, for example, about Jean-Marie Eveillard and his successor, Matthew McLennan, how they they basically, they beat the market over something like 40 years between them by something like three percentage points a year, maybe a little less. But over the years, that adds up to millions and millions and millions of dollars. And so it's a game where you don't actually have to be Buffett and to have beaten the market by 10 percentage points a year for decades you can actually beat the market by half a percentage point, one percentage point, two percentage points. And it's an overwhelming advantage over decades. And, and I think one of the things, one of the things that you have to really focus on in both in investing and life is making sure that you're putting these marginal advantages in your favor. And so one of the things that Jack Bogle said a long time ago was, is that if, for example, you make 10% a year, um, for 30 years. Let's say you invest a million dollars. I think it comes out, um, I can't remember, I, I did this some recently and it, it came out at something like $17.5 million or something like that. And then he said, if you have one and a half percentage points of expenses a year, that million dollars over 30 years comes out, at, I think, 11, 11 and a half million. So there was, there was something like a $6 million difference just because of that 1.5 percentage points a year. So so this is a game where actually small small advantages over time become overwhelming. And I think that has profound impl implications that you don't actually have to be Buffett. You don't have to be the best, but you want to you want to make sure that you're you're better than most people, that you that you're taking that you're thinking about these things like like transaction costs, taxes that can can erode your gains. And and make you truly mediocre, and and timing the market also is catastrophic. I I shared something recently from one of the investors I read about, Francois Rochon, who I think said that in 2020, I think the S and P 500 went up something like 18, 18 and a half percent. You would know this better than I do. And he said if you missed something like the five best trading days, your return went down to minus 18%. <laughs> and so just this idea of trading in and out of the market, thinking that you can time it somehow, ends up being a huge destroyer of, of your wealth, unless you happen to be someone like Stan Druckenmiller or, or George Soros or Ray Dalio, who actually is a sufficient genius that they can, they can sort of figure out, okay, here's where I think things are going. Um, but for most of us, we're not Miller, Soros, or Dalio. And so I think these ideas of, of just avoiding some of what Munger calls standard stupidities, so not 
not having high expenses, not fooling yourself that you can you can predict the future, not trading in and out of the market, not renting stocks instead of owning for them them for the long term. Just if you avoid a lot of those really dumb things, you have such an advantage over most people. And and so I don't know. For me, instead of trying to focus on being a brilliant investor, I for the most part am now focusing on being a a, a decent investor. Hmm. And so. I'm a little schizophrenic in my approach. So because I'm aware of my ability to delude myself and overestimate my own talents, I, I do own two index funds that I've owned kind of forever, where I own the Vanguard International Stock Market Index Fund and the Vanguard uh, Total Market Index Fund, which is a domestic one. But then I own three, um, three actively managed funds run by managers who I do think understand these principles that Buffett and Munger teach and who I think Stand a, stand a good chance of beating the market over time. And so I think that's a pretty good balance based on, based on the difficulty of beating the market after taxes and after expenses. But the fact that if you actually understand these principles, they're so powerful that you, you can make a tremendous amount of money over the long term. And so I'm kind of, I'm kind of hedging against my own incompetence and self-delusion. But, but one thing that I do know is that I'm not very equipped to pick individual stocks. And so I try to limit the amount that I do that. So I, so I did clone a stock pick of Monish Pabrites at the absolute bottom of the market um, in 2020, where I could see a, a very smart contrarian bet that he made. And I'm like, yeah, I can't really analyze this, but I'm going to clone that. And then I own Berkshire Hathaway, which I, I in some ways, I regard almost as a, as a fund at this point, because it gives you some diversification, but it has these structural advantages of having captive capital that can't leave. And so the shareholders can't bail out. And then I own these three actively managed funds. So, so I'm, I, I guess that expresses my own, my own ambivalence about whether, how, how difficult it is to beat the market, but also the enormous benefits if you are a good investor. And I think, I think the three people that I've invested with are all very smart and will do well over time. How about luck? How much do these great investors, do they acknowledge that luck might play a part? Do they say there is no luck involved? It's entirely me and my amazing brain. What are the feelings yeah. around that? Like we get how that marks, question a lot from people who are trying to learn about investing. Yeah. Howard Marks talks a lot about the role of luck, in both in investing and in life. And he told me this wonderful story where he said that basically... When he when he got out of of Wharton, I guess it was he had he had applied for a job at Lehman Brothers, and he said the one thing I knew was I really wanted to work at Lehman Brothers, and and they didn't give him the job, and he went and worked elsewhere, and then through a series of lucky lucky moves, he ended up investing in these very inefficient areas of the market, like like really toxic debt, like the debt of companies that were going bankrupt or were already bankrupt, which really played to his strengths and has enabled him to become a multi-billionaire running you know, $120, $140 billion. But he said many years later, he found out that he had got the job at Lehman Brothers, but that the guy who, the partner who was supposed to call him and tell him that he got the job, got drunk and had a hangover and failed to call him. And so he no. said, yeah, so he said, think about how different my life would have been yeah. if I had ended up at Lehman Brothers, which is the firm I knew I wanted to work at, 
And I had climbed and I'd become a partner. And then it went bankrupt in 2008, 2009 during the global financial crisis. And I would have lost all of that money. And so one of the things that, that I think is very helpful for, for Howard in recognizing the role of luck is that it protects him from what I call in the book, master of the universe syndrome, where you start to believe, God, I'm so smart. Look, look how smart I am. Look how right I've been about all of these yeah. things, which sets you up perfectly for screwing up. And, and when I look at the great investors, I think on the whole, they have this strange combination of tremendous conviction in what they're doing because they are really smart and they're prepared to go against the crowd and bet on their alternate view of, of reality. But at the same time, they have this contrary characteristic of humility to say, well, I don't really know what's going to happen. And so let me hedge against my own, my own um, uncertainty and the fact that the future is so unknowable. And, and so John Templeton, who, who I interviewed many years ago, said to me that, that he, had, he for many years, he used to track all of the investment decisions he'd made. And he said, I've, I've made over half a million decisions, investment decisions over the course of my lifetime. This is when he was about 86 and I was interviewing him. And he said, he said to me, and I realized that a third of them were the opposite of wisdom, uh, which I thought was a wonderful phrase. It's a good euphemism for, yeah, I was dead wrong. And so, so he said, even the smartest investors are going to be wrong a third of the time. And so this brings us back to the point that Jeff Gundlach made, which is you need to say, if I'm wrong, what's the consequence? And so, so I think having that humility to admit that, that luck plays a part, to admit that we don't know what the future holds is a really important part of survival and resilient wealth creation. And there's a wonderful story that, that um, Joel Greenblatt told me where he said right at the start of his career, where he ran that hedge fund that made 40% a year, he, he started the fund when he was about 27. And, um, and he, one of the first deals he made, it was basically there was, a, there was a company in Florida that he used to visit as a child that ran a, a kind of resort where there would be, um, I think there were Santa Claus on, on water skis and there were these beautiful flamingos everywhere. He had these very fond, sentimental memories of his parents taking him there as a kid. So, so he really loved the fact that then they were in this takeover deal where I think they were being bought out. And he calculated that it was really a riskless deal, that he was going to make a lot of money off this if the, if the deal went through. And there was no reason why it shouldn't go through. And then he said one day he opens the Wall Street Journal and he sees on the front page that the pavilion, the main, the, the main building at this resort, has fallen into a sinkhole. And he said... And he said, it would have been funny if I hadn't been so scared stiff. And, and it's like, literally, it's the, the very start of his career running this hedge fund. And the building has fallen into a sinkhole. And so I think that's a wonderfully comic illustration of the fact that we live in a world where things like COVID happen and where things like buildings falling into sinkholes happen. And so part of being a wise and resilient person is to set yourself up with a margin of safety so that when you're wrong, or, or when unexpected stuff happens, you'll be okay, you'll survive, you'll, you'll survive the dips. And, and so I think this simple idea of wanting to stay in the game is a really distinctive, distinctive approach that, that runs through all of the great investors. They're all, they're all setting themselves up in ways to survive over a long career. And, and you sometimes look at a great investor who, 
who looks great over one cycle. They have an amazing seven-year run or 13-year run or something. But then you discover actually that they weren't that great. And, and I, I guess to go back to your question at the start about how I decided who to, who to write about, I was really interested in, in investors who were not just admirable human beings or wives, but had survived. Because I, as, as Jeff Gundlach said to me, longevity is the ultimate test of success in this business. It's not about doing well over 10 years. It's a, it, it, for your readers, your listeners, you, you want to survive over 40, 50, 60 years of investing in the market. And I think, I think focusing, on, the, focusing on, on resilience and survival and avoidance of ruin is really important. But then at the same time, as, as, as Howard Mark said to me, you can become so focused on risk avoidance that it ends up being return avoidance. And so there's this beautiful paradox here that it's, it's not about issuing risk and, and avoiding all risk. What it's really about is taking intelligent risk, considered risk. And, and so it's, it's kind of like during COVID, right? You, you want to you take considered risk. You want to keep your distance. You want to wear your mask. You want to be careful. You want to wash your hands, but you don't want to stay in your home for the next twenty years. Sure, you'll sure you'll be safe. Sure, you'll have risk avoidance, but you'll you'll die of misery and boredom. And so, this isn't about this isn't about risk avoidance. It's about considered and intelligent risk, and that that applies to every area of life. We're stopping there for this episode. We couldn't stop talking with William, so he's going to be back. Uh, we'll be back for the second half of our chat with him next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding. They really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it's really important, it's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it. <laughs>